Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is February 13th, Thursday of 2014, and tonight our guest is Nicole Cosante of the uh, Center for Motivation and Change, and uh, and uh, she is the co-author of the book, Beyond Addiction, How Science and Kindness Help People Change, which is coming out. It's going to be available very shortly. I've got an advanced copy that I was reading. It's an excellent book. It's one of the best books I've seen for families of people who have addictions. Uh, before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge, lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org. Our guest, Nicole Kosake, is with us right now. I'm going to bring her on. Hello. Hello, Nicole. How are you doing this evening? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Uh, tell us a little bit about the Center for Motivation and Change first. Where, where is it located? What do you guys do? What are you about? Sure. Uh, we're a group practice of psychologists in New York City, right down in Midtown. And we work with both alcohol and substance users themselves and individual and group therapy and we also work with family members of those folks, whether or not the identified patient is in treatment or not. We work with family members to really help them figure out how they can help their loved one, how they can help themselves, and um, learn strategies for that. So we do that in an outpatient setting. And then we also have um, an inpatient setting that just opened in the Berkshires and another outpatient setting in White Plains. And who's on your team? So we have about 25 psychologists now. Um, my co-authors, Dr. Jeffrey Foote and Dr. Carrie Wilkins, um, are both in the outpatient setting. And we have a bunch of other licensed psychologists, all really great folks trained in motivational interviewing and cognitive behavioral therapies and the craft approach, which I think we'll talk about today with family members. Um, and we have a number of other more specialized evidence-based approaches for different issues that often come together with substance use, like insomnia treatments and trauma treatments. So we really focus on evidence-based approaches and how we can utilize those in our practice. Now, you just mentioned CRAFT, and CRAFT I know is an acronym. What does that stand right. for, and what's it all about? Sure, sure. So CRAFT is Community Reinforcement and Family Training. And it's really a cognitive behavioral approach that has a lot of motivational aspects to it, um, which was developed by Dr. Robert Myers in New Mexico. And it's been around for a couple decades and has a lot of good research behind it. You know, they did a lot of work to make sure that they really tested out whether or not this approach was helpful. And what they've found is that 
um, it really is incredibly, I mean, as, as psychological studies go, we're happy with kind of small increments of change. And craft has these amazing rates of effectiveness. About 70% of family members who enter into the craft program get their loved ones into treatment. And usually before their loved one gets into treatment, there's usually been some reduction in the use pattern. And all of these family members end up feeling better. It's quite phenomenal how effective it is. So the main objective of the approach is really to get the loved one into treatment, but along the way we find that people feel better and use has decreased even before that happens. Now, there's two other uh, approaches out there that are kind of well-known, and one is the intervention like you see on television on that show right. Intervention, and then there's the Al-Anon approach. Um, so can you compare craft to each of these? Let's compare it to the intervention first. What's the differences? Uh, sure. Sure. So an intervention is really sort of the surprise party approach. Um, you know, you are working with family, and the interventionists will usually work with family members to help sort of coach them and what they're going to say when they get the loved one into the room. And usually the ultimatum is involving going to rehab, an inpatient stay. Um, that uh, has a few limitations, um, and it's a very confrontational approach. But it's the one, I think you're right, that most people know about, um, certainly televised quite a lot. Um, so it is quite dramatic in the sense of, you know, there's this ultimate moment and everybody shares their feelings and everybody cries and then somebody goes off to rehab. And, you know, that kind of um, dramatic approach is absolutely um, important as an option to have in the world because some situations are really um, that grave and really there's enough life-threatening stuff going on that, that that approach is necessary. But what we've found when we're looking at, you know, when you kind of compare apples to apples, like if you send a family member to go use craft, if you send a family member to go use uh, an intervention or go to Al-Anon, is that, like I said, about 70% of families in craft get their loved one into treatment, and really only about 30% get their loved one into treatment using an intervention. So um, it doesn't do so well, actually, um, when you compare these approaches. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, are, there some, are there any negative effects of the intervention um, in terms of relationships uh, between, the, say, the person using the drugs and their family? Are there repercussions sure. from? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, there can be big repercussions, um, and I think that people don't really have um, the best idea going in what those repercussions might be. You know, we tend to see a lot of people in treatment who are really suffering from those repercussions of feeling angry, feeling attacked, feeling like they were forced into something. Um, and that can last a long time. And one of the things about craft that's so nice is that it really is not a confrontational approach, and the skills that family members learn are much more ongoing in terms of the relationship um, 
and really impact the family relationships in a positive way so that these are interactions that can be improved over the course of a relationship, not just in a, a single moment. You know, people are coached to really change the way they interact with each other, change their communication patterns. And what we see is that family members really take to this approach and it feels intuitive and it really utilizes the love and the desire to help that they have um, in a positive way. So people see how much more effective it is to speak in these more positive sort of affirming ways and they take to it. You know, it really feels engaging to them as opposed to an intervention which, you know, you're really trained to have a moment in time when you're going to have an impact. And as you say, there there can be real repercussions. So what is the difference between CRAFT and Al-Anon? How do those compare? So, yeah, when we do that, that apples-to-apples kind of, uh, study um, looking at those three approaches because really that's it, right? <laughs> you know, in in our society, mm-hmm. if you go to your MD or a friend or somebody and say, you know, I have a loved one who's really struggling with substances and I don't know what to do, those are really the the only two that you'll really ever hear is, well, you could do an intervention or you should go to Al-Anon. And Al-Anon and, and interventions are sort of at the uh, at the ends of one continuum, right? So an intervention mm-hmm. is quite confrontational, whereas Al-Anon really takes the approach of, you know, disengage from your loved one and really focus on your own self-care. And if you're continuing to be engaged with your loved one in any um, sort of helping fashion, most of that is sort of defined as being enabling or codependency. So Al-Anon, you know, what Al-Anon does really well is it helps people feel connected and feel better and feel like they have people to talk to. And that is a critical issue for people in this situation because isolation can be a real burden and interfere with people's ability to really function and feel good and be able to take care of themselves very well. So on that score, Al-Anon does very well. But again, in this apples-to-apples race, you know, who's getting their loved one into treatment, Al-Anon does pretty poorly, um, worse than interventions. They're around 12% getting their loved ones into treatment. But Al-Anon is really not designed in the least to try and get a loved one into treatment. It's really designed to help the family member to feel better. So you know, what I hear a lot from people who are coming to us for craft is, you know, I kept going to Al-Anon meetings because I got a lot of support, but nobody ever helped me understand what I'm supposed to do differently or what am I supposed to say? How am I supposed to engage with my kid or my husband in a different way? And the advice piece is really missing. And that's on purpose for Al-Anon. It's designed that way. But I think a lot of family members, especially parents, are really yearning and looking, seeking out the ways that they might be able to change their situation and what can they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Al- Al-Anon really says disengage is what they really say. Right. That's right, um, yeah. 
So you mentioned the word enabling. Um, is there such a thing as enabling? Is all helping behavior enabling? Oh, tell me about that. Yeah, I think you know enabling and codependency exist, but I think in our culture, it's really gotten too broadly applied as a term. So that, as you say, you know, help, all helping behavior suddenly gets lumped into this category of enabling. And I think not only is that false, but I think it really puts family members into a bind of feeling like everything they know about loving their partner or their kid has to be sort of thrown out the window um, in the face of a challenge like substance use. When, in fact, you know, a lot of helping behaviors are not enabling. You know, strictly speaking, enabling really is when you do something that increases the likelihood that your loved one is going to be continuing their unhealthy patterns with substances. So, you know, lots of helping behaviors have nothing to do with that. And I think that in our culture there's really an exaggeration that includes and sort of lumps together lots of different helping behaviors that um, that then people feel badly about. They feel like, well, I can't do anything that's helpful because then I'll be enabling. And it puts people into this really frozen spot that I think is, is uh, detrimental. Yeah, I agree, uh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's really important to, uh, well, we need to think about harm is really what we need to think about. And, you know, are we uh, enabling the, the people to remain healthy, to remain safe, to remain free from harm? I mean, those are all good things. That's right. That's right. That's right. You can enable good behavior uh, just as well as bad. Yeah, because there's a lot of research that, that the more the more lost people have, the the harder it is for them to make a positive change. I know Stan Peel quotes this a lot. You know, people that have, you know, family relationships, employment, uh, education, uh, have all these things intact. They they're the ones that have the greatest success in overcoming their addictions. That's right, and, and it makes a lot of sense too, because you know you have something to protect. If you have a, a life that is more or less intact with relationships that matter, with a sense of purpose around a job, with a sense of stability around housing, etc., these things are something that are that people want to protect, and it's a reason to really do the hard work of making these kinds of changes that one, when it's all gone, when it starts to all erode, that it's harder to build up that motivation and have the strength to really put together the, the effort it takes to really make these kinds of changes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which, of course, doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to uh, pay your son's rent because he spent all his money on crack instead of paying his rent right. with it. Right, right. Right, I think I think that there's there's a lot of a lot of confusion about how how do you maintain a healthy relationship with someone, especially a child, when you know you've been supporting them and then realize, okay, you know, a lot of my support has been going to this really unhealthy behavior, 
and figuring out how to pull that support out of the equation but remain engaged and continue the support on an emotional level and a supportive level in terms of the relationship. And that's that can be tricky, but I think that that really is the goal, is to maintain, certainly in craft, that's what we talk about is maintaining a relationship and figuring out how you can really support and engage in positive ways and support the positive behaviors of your loved one while pulling away the support or the, quote, enabling behaviors that might be supporting the negative stuff that you don't want to be supporting. Now, people often get in uh, bad bad communication habits with their loved ones who are using drugs or alcohol problematically. And what are some of the things that people have to unlearn, and what are the, some of the new things you have to teach them? In terms of communication? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, it's so common that families get into this real negative spiral of because um, family members are frustrated, their loved ones are feeling attacked, everyone is defensive, there's a lot of negative communication that tends to occur. And I think it's pretty understandable how that happens because lives get kind of thrown upside down and feelings are hurt and money is lost and anger is pretty common. So one of the things that Kraft really does is try and help people to think about communication in a positive way, really think about how you can speak. And when I say positively, I don't necessarily mean like being a cheerleader, but really thinking about how you phrase things in the positive or in the negative. So are you going to focus on everything you want your loved one to be doing differently or are you going to focus on the things that you want them to continue doing or the positive aspects of their behavior, which is a lot easier to develop a positive communication sort of dynamic around if you are focused on what they're doing well. So I'd really love it if you would help me with dinner again um, is a much more affirming conversation as opposed to you never help me with dinner, this is terrible. You know. These are small examples, but, you know, really helping family to think about that in a way that helps them understand the ways that they themselves would be more appreciative of a conversation and more receptive to a conversation if, you know, people are focused on what's going well and what can continue to go well if you really focused on it. So even in the course of making a request, really identifying what you want to see happening more often or in a different way and focused on that. Mm -hmm. I think there was an example in the book about a husband that would cook dinner for his, his wife uh, when she came home drunk and his uh, change was to uh, decide to only cook dinner for her if she came home sober and if uh, she came home drunk she was going to cook for herself. Right. Right, and you know that's that's something that's a a strategy around um, the ways that you reinforce a positive behavior, right? And and that also involves the communication. How do you communicate about that? Do you say, you know, I'm never cooking cooking dinner for you again if you come home like this, or do you say, 
you know, I really love having dinner with you and cooking for you, so as long as you come home sober, that's what I plan on doing. Um, you know, it's really a way of thinking about how you're communicating and encouraging people to really think about how they can decrease defensiveness on the part of their loved one. Now, what uh, what do you teach people to do for themselves? Yeah. Uh, in the realm of, of self-care? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the big components of craft is self-care, is helping people to really attend to their, their own needs. And, you know, one of the things that's so common for family members when they're in a situation like this is they... They're helping and helping, and their boundaries just get extended way out too far. And so trying to reel that back in a bit usually involves some amount of setting boundaries, setting limits for oneself. And people tend to be so overextended and exhausted in an emotional sense and a physical sense and have approached this problem probably like any other. You know, it feels like an acute crisis, so you're going to put all your own needs to the side. You know, I'll be, I'll feel better, I'll deal with going to yoga or going to the doctor or eating well, going on that diet. I'll deal with all that once he's doing better. And it's sort of a natural human response, and yet the problem with substance use is that it's often not an acute situation. We can have acute moments, but it's much more chronic than that. Um, and if you approach it as if it's a sprint, you're going to get exhausted pretty quickly. And we really encourage people to approach things more like it's a marathon. You know, really think about how you're taking care of yourself on a day-to-day -day basis so that you have the results you have the strength to be trying to do things differently and being helpful, but from a place of greater strength yourself. Plus, it's a much, much better thing to model for your loved one if you're taking good care of yourself, if you're talking to your friends, if you're exercising, if you're doing good things for yourself that help with your own resilience. It's a good way of modeling healthy behavior as well. And what about damage control? What are things to do about damage control? <laughs> so, I mean, one of the things uh, we talk about in the book is really thinking about, you know, how do you set limits for yourself? How do you really identify what are the negative consequences that might be happening to your loved one were you not uh, protecting them or interfering in some way? So... Are you calling people and making excuses for them? Are you calling in to work and, or writing late notes for your kid going to school? Those are ways in which family members might be standing in the way of consequences really impacting their loved one. And that's a sort of segment of craft that we talk about called allowing natural consequences. So. The idea there is really figuring out how you can step out of the way so that the world really has an impact on your loved one directly being a much better teacher in a way than any lecture you might give them 
but instead having them experience things directly from the world that might influence their motivation, in fact, might help them to identify the downsides in a more immediate way for the behaviors that they're engaging in. So, you know, setting limits, having a clearly identified way of allowing natural consequences, all of that has to do with really, um, you know, limiting the, the damage that can occur around the substance use and infiltrate the rest of the family's life. Mm-hmm. Of course, one can be kind of a difficult uh, area, the, the one of, uh, you know, not calling in sick for your husband. If, if the husband is, for example, right. the sole breadwinner, if there's no other source of income, you know, you don't want to get him fired and get the whole family on welfare either because that doesn't really help. That actually makes things worse. That's right, Yeah. Yeah, it can be a very tricky situation because, you know, if you're going to allow a natural consequence to occur, you have to think about who's really going to suffer from this consequence uh, occurring. You know, is it me or is it him? Is it the whole family? You know, you're not going to allow your kid to be taken care of, for instance, by someone who's been using, um, and you're not going to allow necessarily somebody to take the keys and go driving, you know, these are consequences that most people wouldn't allow, even though it might be a helpful teacher in terms of changing a person's motivation level. It's not something we would encourage and certainly not something most people would agree to in the sense that you're really incurring more damage to the family as opposed to sort of singularly identifying a way to help somebody's motivation change. So it can be a, a, a tricky situation for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes I think that just, uh, you know, you can't count on the other person to necessarily change. So you just might have to think about taking care of yourself, and that just might mean that a wife might need to get a source of income, uh, you know, independent of the spouse. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that that we do talk about in the book and which we have encountered um, in our own practice is really just that, you know, we can help family members a lot. Communication can change. A lot of motivation can increase. The family can improve in terms of their well-being. And still the loved one might not make all the changes you want them to make. And at certain points, you have to make a decision about that and make decisions that might actually be disengaging from that person. Usually when we're working with with parents, that point, that decision point, rarely is reached, but it does sometimes get reached. Um, With spouses, it, it happens more because, of course, divorce is an option, you know, separation is an option. So those kinds of things are reality, and and we have to really be sort of sensitive to the fact that there are changes that a loved one can make, and sometimes they can't be made. And when that happens, people have to be able to take care of themselves, which is why craft is really an approach that does help people to focus on their own needs and 
make smaller goals and really identify the ways that they can meet those goals in a reasonable way so that they're really able to have the resilience to make big, difficult decisions like that, like whether you would leave your husband, whether you would change the nature of a relationship in a significant way from a place of resilience and strength and feeling clear-headed as opposed to feeling, you know, frantic and, you know, making big ultimatums in, in a moment of extreme emotion and overwhelm. Um, those are things that can actually be detrimental in the end because if you're making those decisions from a state of, um, you know, dysregulation, you may not feel the same way the next day, and that really can be difficult on the relationship and the family. Yeah, making uh, ultimatums or actually making decisions in a state of emotional upset of extreme is probably the wrong time to do it. It should be when one's calm, correct? Right, right. I mean, that's true also about, you know, any kind of crisis or people coming home drunk or using, et cetera. We really encourage people to be thinking twice about having big conversations in those moments, both when you yourself are feeling overwhelmed and when your loved one is altered or upset him or herself as well because those are moments when you're thinking from a different part of your brain, a more emotional part of your brain. And, you know, making ultimatums in that state of mind, although, you know, ultimately they might need to be made, in that state of mind there can be a lot of regret and uh, miscommunication. Well, it's important, isn't it, to uh, carry through on the things that you, on ultimatums that you make. You can't just change your mind and then say, well, no, I, I just, and go back on them, can you? Right, well, you can, but <laughs> you, you'll lose a lot of leverage if you aren't able to follow through on what you're saying. So, you know, I think it's so understandable when people get overwhelmed that they make threats because they really feel at a loss. They feel you know, that they can't actually take anymore and they don't have any other recourse to um, affect change but to make threats, even if they don't intend to fall through on them. But that can have big repercussions because if nobody really believes that you're going to fall through on what you say, then it's very hard to be taken seriously and the leverage that you do have gets really eroded. So, you know, one thing that's really important to remember is, you know, if you are going to make a plan, whether it has to do with, you know, I'm going to agree to do X, Y, and Z so long as you're sober this week, or, you know, I'm going to stop doing this if you come home drunk, you have to be able to follow through on that stuff. So. That's why thinking it through carefully in advance before you do communicate has such value because it allows you to really think through, what am I going to be able to follow through on? Is it realistic for me to be able to do this? Is it going to be too far outside my comfort zone to actually agree to this? Or, you know, am I really able to follow through? Now, I'm going to go back to the beginning now. Um, so. 
I'm brand new to this program, and my spouse is uh, drinking you know, a lot all the time, and I've been screaming at them that's stopping to go to AA and all this, and they're not having any success. So I'm showing up at your office for the first time, and what are you going to tell me? Uh, what's the, what's, well, what is my first step that I need to start taking? Well, I mean, I think it really depends what your priorities are. You know, um, my goal would be to really understand the situation as best I could so that I could really help you to identify what the goals would be based on your priorities. So for some people, you know, they are really having a lot of trouble taking care of themselves, and that's a really good place to start. For another person, they're doing okay taking care of themselves, but they really uh, need to figure out how to communicate in a better way so they feel heard, so their message is heard, so that the other person is less defensive, et cetera. So that might be a place to start. You know, craft has sort of a modulized approach, so we can start with allowing natural consequences, we can start with self-care, we can start with positive reinforcement or communication. So it really depends on where your priorities are and what you're feeling like the most pressure under. And the main thing really about initial sessions with craft that I think is such a cultural shift really is that there's hope, you know, just instilling hope that things could change. You know, there are small things that people can do in taking care of themselves, about thinking about communications, making a request of their loved one, sort of throwing out the, all the uh, yelling strategies that might be happening. All of those things are relatively small in the larger pool of life, but they can have big effects. And to really impart that hope um, toward someone in a situation like that, I think is sort of a cultural shift away from the hopelessness and terrible stigma and shame that we usually think about and that most people feel around substance use. So, you know, one of the, the big goals in craft is to sort of chip away at that shame and and instill some hope about things that can be changed and things that can have an impact in a positive way. Okay. Um, a lot of craft um, talks about getting your loved one into treatment. Um, does everyone need treatment to change their substance abuse, their substance use? That's a great question. And no, they don't. Um, the vast majority of people who have difficulties with substances, even qualifying for dependence, um, get better on their own. You know, the whole natural recovery um, data that we have in studies really shows us that people, the vast majority of people get better on their own. And um, you know, one of the things that we talk about in this book and that we really advocate is is for people to think about these issues on uh, sort of earlier in the process so that there's less damage done in the families and um, there's more quickly a capacity to be able to make changes in a positive direction. So if people are 
thinking that they need to kind of hit rock bottom before they can um, seek treatment or before they can start making changes, then that's a very different feeling than thinking, you know, I'm kind of going astray with my use of this substance or with alcohol. Let's think about making some efforts to make these changes and talking with my spouse about it. And, you know, that's a very different way of approaching substance use than we typically have in our culture. So, you know, the vast majority of people do get better on their own, and we tend to see in the treatment world sort of a one slice of, of people who are struggling with this issue. Now, you mentioned the hitting rock bottom, and <laughs> boy, that takes me back to, uh, you know, when I was uh, involved in 12-step groups, I would ask, I would question things, I would question, and I would be told that I needed to go out and drink more and suffer more and come crawling back on my knees when I was ready to accept God and surrender to God and all this uh, religion, well, religious crap in my opinion, although some people like it. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's an unfortunate piece of 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 some. Not all twelve step meetings are like that, of course, but of of many in which there is a sense that if you're you're not benefiting yet, then that means that you're not ready. Um, as opposed to a much more motivational approach, which is. If you're not benefiting from my approach with you, maybe it has something to do with what I'm doing or saying with you or the stance I'm taking with you. And I think that that is a shift um, that needs to happen in our culture at large. You know, how is it that we can adopt different strategies to help people make the changes they need to make rather than expect or ask them to be in a different state when they enter our office. You know, you need to be really motivated or you need to feel like you are clear about all the terrible consequences or you need to have incurred terrible consequences. In other words, you need to hit bottom. Um, I think it's, it's a really actually unsafe premise to expect that someone needs to hit bottom before they can actually make changes. So what if my, you know, I'm dealing with my spouse and my spouse, you know, has been drinking every day for, you know, years and then my spouse comes in and says, well, I had an abstinence day yesterday. I didn't drink at all. So what, what would be the reaction to that? Celebration. <laughs> I mean, I think that one of the, one of the things it, that it is so difficult for, for families to to do is to really take note of the the positive moments when you do have them and attend to them, notice them, enrich them by reinforcing them, paying attention with how much you're talking about them or spending time with the person when they're able to share those kinds of um, revelations. You know, it's hard because Maybe for the last week they've been drinking to excess and, you know, yelling and screaming and making people's lives miserable. So it's kind of hard to turn on a dime and suddenly celebrate a moment when you feel like you've been sort of 
um, under attack by the substance use for a while. And, and yet we can understand from the person's perspective who's had this day of not drinking, you know, if I feel like I'm getting attacked and negative communication comes my way no matter if I drink or not, then that's not very motivating to actually have more abstinence days. So thinking about it from their perspective, which is a lot of the work of craft, is really thinking from someone else's perspective. What do you think motivates them? What do you think would feel reinforcing to them if you if they came home without drinking? What do you think they would appreciate hearing? Would they appreciate, you know, uh, hearing that they're really proud of you? Would they appreciate um, having a dinner together? Like what from their perspective would feel like a reinforcement of that effort? And when you do think from the other person's perspective, then you can kind of think through in a more strategic way about how you can have the impact that you want to have. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, uh, people are being taught too much the traditional thing of saying, well, one day, you didn't drink for one day, that's not good enough, you need to go to rehab, you need to go to AA meeting. This is not good enough, is what, you know, is the thing that people are almost being taught by television and things to say, and that's totally uh, demotivating. Yeah, it is demotivating, and it's, it's demoralizing, actually, to to really feel like, you know, this step that I took in a positive way is not enough. I need to take the next step, and then there will be a next step after that. And, you know, if you're in treatment but, you know, you're not speaking up enough in meetings or, you know, there's there can always be something else to be done that makes it a more, quote, fuller recovery but in fact, you know, all these little steps in the right direction are cause for celebration. Again, it doesn't have to be, you know, a cheerleading squad that comes along, but rather, you know, just attention to the positive elements, attention to the healthy behaviors so that there is a real recognition on everyone's part that this is a step in the right direction. This is worthy you you can't actually make a change all at once as much as television would like us to believe otherwise you know change usually happens gradually it usually happens in a jagged line sort of back and forth so you know being realistic allows you to actually celebrate the small steps in the right direction now is total abstinence the only way that people can be recovered or can some people recover by cutting back on their substance use? You know, it's funny, I, I spoke with someone recently who was saying, you know, I I just don't want to hear about, you know, the possibility of moderation because I, I think that that would be too seductive to me. And I think that that's true for many people who have chosen a path of abstinence that it feels scary to consider moderation as a goal. But the truth is is that some people can moderate successfully and some people can't. And some people can moderate one substance while being abstinent from another and vice versa. The, The... Paths to a healthy life are much more varied than our culture tends to give credit for. 
and you know the the statistics tell us that people can actually become dependent on a substance and end up being able to moderate that substance. It's not a huge percentage, but there are people who can do that. And I think the main thing to remember about that is just that there are such individualized situations and we really don't have enough evidence or information about the way the brain works, about compulsive behaviors in general, to be able to say, this person can end up moderating, this person cannot, this person can use this substance, but not this other one. It's a complicated world. And the simpler route is absolutely to choose a path of abstinence. That's the safest route, that's sort of the clearest most clearly defined rules. Um, and for some people, it's really, really important to have that clarity and necessary if things have reached that point. And yet, I think the other piece besides sort of remembering the individualized situation, the other piece is just that, you know, allowing someone to reach their goal on their own terms, on their own pace, is so important as a provider because if I'm to tell someone, you know, you really have to be abstinent, that's the only path that's going to work for you, not only would I be lying because I don't know that for sure, it's also not so helpful for the person to actually be told what they need to do if they come to a place on their own of realizing, you know, I've run this experiment I've talked about it honestly with my therapist, with myself, and I'm realizing I can't really do this. This is There's too much harm happening still in order for me to feel like this is a healthy path. That recognition is so much more sustaining of long-term change rather than being told what they need to do and trying to reconcile that. It's a much healthier, longer-term uh plan to help someone come to that recognition of their own if that's where it's going to be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, Abstinence is very clear-cut. As I've mentioned on the show before, you know, there's there's a couple of addictions of my own that I chose abstinence for as the best solution, and one is television. And, (laughs) you know, television... They they never talk about television addiction on television. You ever notice that? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For me, it was really, it was really bad. You know, I would watch crap on TV, and I didn't even like what I was watching, and watch all day long, and not get my schoolwork done. You know, and I decided, no more of this. I'm not going to let a television cross my door. I'm not going to have one in the house. Period. Can't deal with it. Don't want it. Don't even like it. So. Just keep it away from me. You know, I will not let a television in my house. For me, that's totally the best decision with television, complete abstinence. Well, basically I call it complete abstinence. Sometimes when I'm at my my friend's house, I watch uh, cartoons with her kid, but that's not really a temptation. (laughs) (laughs) And Well, my other one is cigarettes, you know, which and I like to have a cigar now and then, but cigarettes I don't want. Any cigarettes, you know, too damn hard to control. Um, I have a whole 
different mindset smoking a cigar and you know, having one in a week. I had one in the past year, so you know, I, I, I tell people I regret not smoking enough this past year. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's a good example, you know, cigarettes and cigars. You know, neither are super healthy for you by any stretch, and yet they are experienced really differently by people. And, you know, you you are able to do one without the other, and I think it, it takes a lot of um, patience with yourself and ability to sort of look at the world in a way that allows you to perceive the gray areas so that you can actually make a decision like this one I can't use, this one I can use in moderation, this one, you know, is way out of control for me and make determinations for yourself that are really individualized and healthy for you. Yeah, I know. And, the, you know, the, the other one is alcohol, which I used to really drink a lot. Um, and now, usually, I drink one day a week. I drink safely at home. I drink to intoxication, but I don't go out, don't get in trouble, don't drink on work nights. It's not moderation in a classical sense because it's definitely intoxication, but it's safe and there's no harm in it. There's no harm related to it. Mhm, mhm, mhm. Yeah, the. Our society is one that takes sort of a moral stance about that, and and I think it's to the detriment of being able to think in an individualized way about really what can work for different people and identifying the ways that it has value for you, it has a consequence for you, is is really much more important than taking a sort of ideological stance um, about all things for yourself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with other things, too. I mean, I know people who uh, are recreational heroin users. You know, they, they restrict themselves totally to weekends, and, you know, they've been recreational users for years. They're in a very stable pattern. Uh, it's not something I would choose to mess around with myself because <laughs> I've already had enough right. fun with uh, other substances, so um, I don't want to mess around with something that, that's rather addictive. But I, some people have stable patterns with this. But, you know, society cannot say, oh, you're a recreational heroin user, that's fine, you don't need treatment, you don't need prison. We, we can't really deal with that in our society at all. Yeah, I mean, heroin is such a such a tricky issue, opiates in general. I mean, there's getting a lot more press recently, of course. But, you know, that... I think is one of the substances that is so interesting in its history. You know, we had so many people that came back from Vietnam dependent on opiates and were able to stop without much difficulty. You know, the vast majority mm -hmm. of people who came back and who were had been dependent ended up stopping without problems. And, and that really kind of flies in the face of our understanding of what a highly addictive substance does to a person. You know, usually people think about it as you start, you go on that slope, downward slope, and that's the only trajectory. Um, and it's just not true on an individualized basis. But that certainly is a substance that, um, that you know, I think 
we have to take really seriously as a public health issue um, the, the amount of um, different kinds of opiates that are available in our society and the ways that people access them um, is dangerous. Well, it is dangerous, and people have uh, no education, really, about uh, using opiates safely. I've been tempted to write a book about safe opiate use. I might, I might collaborate with some of my colleagues and do this, because if you start looking at the overdose data, about 9 out of 10 overdoses are due to mixing drugs, opiates and alcohol, opiates and cocaine, opiates and something else. You know, it's very dangerous to mix and people really aren't aware of that. They don't teach you that in school. They teach you just say no. They don't teach you anything right. about safe, safely using opiates, for sure. Right. Well, that's, that's, I mean, I think that's exactly right, that there's, you know, if you take an abstinence-based approach and really that's all you can see as a potential uh, healthy path, then you do sort of whitewash all the other ways of potentially utilizing um, both healthy behaviors as well as more risky behaviors. And, you know, the combination, for instance, of benzodiazepines with alcohol is really deadly, and I think mm -hmm. very few know about that, um, you know, to be taking a Valium in the course of the day and not thinking about the fact that you're planning on having martinis that night is is not something that I don't think doctors talk about it enough when they're prescribing. I don't think our society really understands that in in the way that they ought to as, as quite a dangerous thing. Um, in fact, you know, I talk with parents all the time about, you know, uh, parents of, of teenagers or people in college, um, they often feel like, well, you know, um, alcohol is, is safe, but, you know, marijuana is is more dangerous, right? Don't, you know, I've heard this many times. And mm -hmm, I have mm -hmm. to say, you know, actually, alcohol is legal, but it has a lot more potential for harm um, in an intoxicated state than marijuana does. You know, alcohol ends up with people in the hospital. You know, you don't see that with marijuana. So, I mean, I think there is so much misinformation about different substances because our society just takes sort of a moral stance with this, and, and, and that's not so helpful. Yes, um... A couple people have talked about ranking drugs in terms of how much damage they cause. And certainly if you look at the number of deaths caused, I mean, tobacco is the number one killer of any drug out there, and alcohol is number two. That's right, and both legal. <laughs> you know, I, I, I am, we've been talking recently about this because uh, CMC just opened uh, a rehab um, in the Berkshires, and, you know, this question of whether or not you have um, smoking or caffeine available in an inpatient rehab setting is really a difficult one. I've had many, many patients who come out of rehab, didn't smoke cigarettes before they went into rehab, but going into rehab for alcohol or other substances, they come out smoking cigarettes. And 
it just is such a tragedy to me because, in fact, you know, as you say, cigarettes are going to cause a lot of harm for sure. And, you know, to pick up another addictive substance while you're in treatment for something else is just a travesty. Uh, yeah, that's not good. You know, I, I would like to see people more educated about electronic cigarettes, which, I mean, if you're going to smoke something, that's a much safer alternative. Um, you know, I, I wrote some stuff about tobacco harm reduction. If you, if you have one cigar a week, you don't inhale it, um, you're at very low risk for any, uh, any uh, tobacco-related diseases uh, compared to, you know, smoking 20 cigarettes a day and inhaling all of them. Right. Right, that's right. But again, I think there's there's such a, a shame and stigma around substance use that it feels like you sort of fall into a category of um, being an addict, for instance, um, which is a word I really don't use typically. But you know the the category of being addicted to something feels like a very simplistic approach, but is one that I think our society feels very com- more comfortable with is I'm over here in this non-addict category and you're over there in the addict category. It, there's something comforting about it because otherwise it sort of implicates a lot of different behaviors that we might otherwise want to be feeling more comfortable about. Yeah, it seems like, you know, it seems like we always have to have some group that we have as a scapegoat, as, you know, the the group that we hate. And currently it seems to be, you know, the people that we call addicts and alcoholics are the ones it's okay to really despise. And I don't use either of those words because I consider them both hate speech. I say there there are people who use substances and some people use them problematically and some people use them unproblematically. If you use them problematically, then the thing to do is to find a way to not use them problematically, whether you quit or whether you get rid of the problems. Right. I mean, I think one of the reasons that people don't seek treatments, don't uh, ask for help, is because there's a feeling that you have to self-identify as being in that category of alcoholic or addict in order to receive help. And it's a real barrier for a lot of people to make changes. Again, you know, if you feel like you have to sort of be in a category of really warranting that label of an addict before you can start to make changes or get help for yourself, you're you're missing a lot of time when you could actually be receiving help. You could be getting on a healthier path. So I think those kinds of words, I would agree with you. I, I really don't use them myself. And, I, you know, a lot of people actually find them very helpful. And for those people, I think that's that's great and they should use them. But I think a lot more people find them to be a big obstacle to being able to um, ask for help and get on a better path for themselves. If you feel like you have to self-identify in that way, um, you just don't make the changes. You just don't go in that direction. 
Well, it looks like we're running out of time. So before we close off, would you give us uh, your website and the book again so everybody can uh, buy the book, which will be – well, it's available for pre-order right now. It should be – it's uh, on sale very shortly. It is. It's uh, available for pre-order, and on Tuesday it will be available. Um, uh, and our website is motivationandchange.com, all spelled out, no hyphens or dots or anything. Um, and the book, Beyond Addiction, um, is is really um, a soup-to-nuts kind of uh approach for family members to understand motivation, to understand treatment options, to understand what they can do for themselves and for their loved ones to make a healthier path. Okay. Thank you very much for being our guest this evening, uh, Nicole Kosanke. Thank you. And everyone, come back next week. Our guest will be uh, Pete Soderman. He's a smart, smart recovery facilitator, and he's written a book, which I just started reading. So we'll be talking about that next week. I'll see you all then. Thank you, everyone, and good night. Thank you.